Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procina Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at PWW Law, and I'm joined today by Leslie DiPietro, one of our other attorneys. We're excited to discuss supplemental needs planning today, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Sounds good. So supplemental needs planning is a big term and it's very legal in nature, but could you break that down for us and just put in context what we're talking about today, who we're talking about today, and really who should be listening and tuning into this episode? Yeah. So anytime we have a client who has a family member or an heir that they're considering uh, leaving something to, and that heir or that beneficiary has some disability. We want to have a conversation about supplemental needs planning. And so um, it might be that I have an adult child who suffers from autism, uh, or I have a sibling who suffers from dementia that I want to include, or maybe I just have a child who suffers from addiction to alcohol or drugs. It might also be that I'm planning with a minor child who has a disability Um, And they're not yet qualified for certain public benefits, but I know good and well that when they turn 18, we're probably going to be applying for those benefits. I want to do some type of special planning for that person. So the benefits at issue are the needs-based public benefits that help disabled persons get the care that they need or to pay for their shelter and other necessary expenses. So that is SSI and Medicaid. Needs-based benefits just means they have to be financially eligible. So they have to be below a certain asset or income level to qualify for those benefits. So the last thing I want to do if I'm leaving assets to one of those individuals is leave them a lump sum of cash outright that's going to cause them to lose or never be eligible for those benefits. They're then probably going to have to use that inheritance to pay for what the public benefits would otherwise cover. Um, So supplemental needs planning is this idea that I'm going to create a special type of protective trust, a supplemental needs trust. If I'm creating it for somebody else, it's called a third-party supplemental needs trust. And I can leave that, I can treat that trust as the beneficiary of my estate, and I can leave those assets there. Uh, And that protects that, that inheritance then from being disrupted, and it makes sure that my beneficiary always keeps those really important needs-based benefits. Awesome explanation. I think that it helps too to say supplemental needs trusts and the assets in them supplement the needs-based government benefits. And I think that that helps people understand really why we create these separate entities called supplemental needs trusts because they they don't supplant, they don't replace the public benefits. They allow for the beneficiary to maintain these needs-based public benefits while setting aside this nest egg that can supplement those needs-based government benefits to ensure that a person's loved one has anything and everything that they may need. You wouldn't believe this, but in the last couple of weeks, I received an email from someone I know and said, mom needs to create her estate plan, but we can't include a particular child because he's on needs-based government benefits. So I think sometimes there's a myth or a misconception that if you're doing your estate planning, you got to completely disinherit the person in your life who is dependent on government benefits. And why isn't that a good idea to do an outright disinheritance? Well, because it eliminates this nest egg that you just talked about, right? So Um, If I've done the proper planning, I've set aside the nest egg, and I should explain how the supplemental needs trust works, right? 
So a third-party supplemental needs trust is some is a beneficiary that I've named in my estate plan. I've appointed a trustee. Initially, I might be the trustee of that trust, but when I pass away, which is probably when that trust is going to be funded, I want a backup person, a successor trustee named. That successor trustee is going to be the one responsible for making those decisions about what they will purchase on behalf of that disabled person so that they have the best quality of life and so that, so that those benefits are not disrupted. Um, so just saying, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to leave them out, uh, leaves this situation where all they have, right, they're completely dependent upon the public benefits that may or may not be available to them at some point in the future. Protesting, protecting that nest egg is uh, something that's very natural for parents in particular because while that disabled uh, beneficiary is living either with the parent or outside of the parent's home, that parent is probably financially supplementing their benefits while they're living. So you can think of the Supplemental Needs Trust as just a way of honoring or continuing that legacy after you've passed away. Perfect. And so if a family thinks that disinheriting their loved one with supplemental needs is a good idea and we explain it's really not a good idea because then there's no way to preserve the nest egg. Well, then they might come back to us and say, well, I'll leave the assets to someone else, maybe a sibling or an aunt or an uncle who will use that money to pay for my loved one's needs. And why isn't that a good idea either? Yeah. So one, right, that sibling might change their mind. They might just decide, well, I'm not going to give anything or use my money for the benefit of my disabled sibling. Oftentimes that's not the case. Um, We usually presume the best of our families and our clients' families, but there's all kinds of things that can come up for that sibling, that trusted person, if you don't properly plan. So what if that disabled or sorry, what if that sibling of the disabled child, what if they get divorced? Right. What if they have to file for bankruptcy or they get sued? So they had the best of intention. They were going to provide for their disabled sibling, but something unforeseen came up and now they can't. If instead we had used that third party supplemental needs trust, that wouldn't have been touched as part of the divorce or the bankruptcy or the litigation. Right. And so we don't want to completely skip a person who has supplemental needs. We don't want to leave the assets to another person expecting them to preserve a nest egg because it's too risky. We definitely don't want to leave assets outright to a person because they would be over-resourced. Their financial level would be higher than the, the mandated rules that require they reduce their assets before they can qualify for public benefits. So This concept of the third-party supplemental needs trust is always the best practice. It's always the go-to tool, and you've talked about it, but will you elaborate about this idea of a standalone third-party supplemental needs trust versus embedding that into maybe their standard revocable trust or will? Yeah. So because we do a lot of work helping clients become eligible for some needs-based benefits, we're very familiar with the possibility Um, that that might be something that comes up for any beneficiary of any estate. So in every will and every revocable trust that we create, we include what's called a contingent supplemental needs trust. And that's a trust where the language is just in the one estate planning document that the client is creating. And it's triggered to go into effect if it's needed, if the circumstances are satisfied. But that contingent supplemental needs trust doesn't deal directly with that particular disabled person's uh, needs, right? We don't talk about what they 
what my hopes and my wishes are for that uh, disabled heir. It's just kind of a vanilla basic document that's or provision that's there if it's needed. Whereas a third party standalone trust is something that can be highly tailored to that individual. And I can I can really be more detailed in what I want for that person. It can be a little bit more aspirational. The other good thing about a third-party supplemental needs trust is I create it now while I'm living, much like I would a revocable trust. In fact, I'd create them both at the same time. But that third-party supplemental needs trust is in effect once I create it. It might not be funded by my estate until I pass away, but a really nice thing is that it can be used family-wide. So if that disabled person has a grandparent who wants to leave something, they can name that same third-party supplemental needs trust. So it can receive assets from multiple places when it's a standalone versus an embedded supplemental needs trust. So when the assets go into the third-party supplemental needs trust, which is typically upon the death of someone who has left assets to that box, they're held by a trustee who manages those assets for the benefit of the person that has dependency on needs-based government benefits to supplement those benefits. What are some things that the trustee can use that money for and how does that really serve as a nest egg and how does it make the quality of life for that person better, more enhanced? So some examples of things that that trustee can use the money for are recreation, vacations, entertainment, some utilities, maybe a cell phone bill or a cable bill or an internet bill. Um, Things that the trustee needs to be cautioned and not spend money from that trust without particular consideration to how it will impact the benefits um, include medical needs um, if if that person is on Medicaid, but it might also include if they're on SSI, shelter expenses or utility type expenses. So oftentimes our trustees of our third party supplemental needs trust need a little extra guidance because They're not just making outright distributions. They've got this whole idea of making sure that they don't disrupt the public benefits um, as they're administering that trust. So if a trustee has used the trust assets for things like recreation, vacation, you know, holiday gifts, travel, sometimes utility, sometimes shelter-related expenses, and then there's money left over in the trust after the person with supplemental needs has passed away. What happens to what's left in that box or that trust after the death of the disabled person? Yeah, so when I create a third-party supplemental needs trust, I can say if the disabled person passes away and there's money left, I'm going to direct where that money goes, whether it's to my other children, it's children of that disabled person, whatever my wishes are, it can be dictated in that third-party supplemental needs trust. And that's contrasted with this idea of a different kind of supplemental needs trust that is sometimes created when proper planning wasn't done on the front end, a first-party supplemental needs trust. So the major distinction between those two types of trusts is the third-party trust, I can direct where it goes. The first-party trust, because planning wasn't done ahead of time, the state is going to be reimbursed for any benefits it paid out on behalf of that disabled person while they were living. So the third-party standalone supplemental needs trust really gives you maximum control to provide the best quality of life for a disabled beneficiary and direct where those assets go at their death. I think it helps to distinguish between that first-party trust you mentioned and the third-party trust 
in this way, a third party trust is funded with assets of a third party. So it's a parent in our example, funding that trust for the benefit of a child who's dependent on government benefits. So it's the third party's assets going into that trust. Therefore, there's no payback requirement to the state. I think a lot of our families are so surprised when we explain that concept that there isn't a Medicaid payback requirement and those assets are still within their control as to where they will go after the death of their loved one. This first party trust, we do them. They come up when you, like you mentioned, when there's not been proper planning done in advance. We talk about when a first party trust needs to be created and and how those assets are really the assets of the disabled person himself or herself. It's not the assets of a third party. Yeah. So your example is, or, or your definition is perfect. It's the money of the disabled person. So if that disabled person, let's see their parent never did any planning whatsoever or did outright gift to disabled person, when they get that inheritance, now they have too much money to qualify for the needs-based benefits that they had attained. So the way to fix that problem is we take that money that over-resources them, that causes them to be financially eligible, and we put it into a new trust that's established by or on behalf of the disabled person. It's still going to name a separate trustee, and it's still going to provide similar administration, right, that the money can be used to supplement but not supplant those public benefits. Uh, but the major distinction there is when that disabled person passes away because it was their money, because Medicaid or SSI allowed them to essentially shelter the extra assets to keep their benefits, they're going to be entitled to payback at the end of that person's lifetime. So that's the real major difference. Other situations where that first party needs trust comes up uh, might be an inheritance. It might be a gift that was received. Oftentimes we see it in the context of some type of uh, litigation or some settlement that that disabled person has received as a result of the accident or the medical malpractice that caused the injury leading to the disability. So when those lump sums of cash come in and they jeopardize the public benefits, that's when that first party trust is so imperative. Perfect. So the first party trust really is a strategy to spend down the assets that a person comes into possession of so that they can reattain eligibility for those government benefits. You want to speak just very briefly about some other strategies that we could use if a person with a disability comes into assets and we need to spend them down so that they can requalify for SSI. But what they're really needing is the Medicaid component because that's providing for their health care needs. Yeah, absolutely. So we we do all types of spend down when we're looking to qualify or requalify someone for benefits. So it might be payment of funeral expenses, prepaid funeral expenses. There might be home improvements that are appropriate, a vehicle purchase that might be appropriate for somebody with a particular disability. So there's all kinds of strategies, um, all highly tailored to an individual circumstances that we might look at. One of the circumstances where we're really paying careful attention to this issue is when we've gotten uh, a spouse qualified for Medicaid benefits and their spouse who is well and has really done the planning for them, we need to update their estate plan because a lot of times husbands and wives or spouses will leave assets directly to each other. But if I have a husband who is well and a wife who's on Medicaid and a nursing, or in nursing home and on Medicaid, if, if husband dies first and he leaves all of his assets to his wife, Everything we protected through the asset protection process 
is going to cause the wife to lose those benefits he worked so hard to get for her. And it means that all those assets are going to have to be subject to a whole new spend down at the single person rates. So one thing, one solution that we create proactively for our well spouses is we will create a special supplemental needs trust so that that money can flow into that trust for the benefit, again, that nest egg for the wife in that situation. Um, oftentimes the trustee, whoever the, the successor trustee is, is managing those assets, using it to supplement the public benefits. And then when wife passes away in that scenario, anything that's left over, again, can be directed by husband's estate to whomever he wants to receive that, whether it's his children or whoever. Um, one of the major distinctions between uh, doing well spouse planning in that particular situation is that those supplemental needs trusts do have to be established in husband's will. So it's really confusing for clients because mm-hmm. there's so much to it. Um, but the, the main idea is that Medicaid allows a spouse to leave an inheritance to a spouse who's on Medicaid, but it has to be done in what's called a testamentary supplemental needs trust, which just means a trust that takes effect when they die and it's embedded in their will document. Right. And, and that's the benefit of getting counsel is we don't expect our families to know the answers to these issues. It's our job to help guide them and figure out, okay, there's all these kinds of supplemental needs trusts. Which one do I need? If any of them, I think that story that you were just telling about the well spouse and the ill spouse is one that we see so often. And for the same reasons we mentioned before, we don't want the well spouse to just disinherit the ill spouse and skip the ill spouse completely if he or she dies first. It's so much better of a practice to set aside the nest egg and then let the assets pass to the rest of the heirs after both deaths of both spouses. Yes. So there's a few other strategies that we sometimes look at. Uh, able accounts is something. Could you just spend a minute or two talking about the context in which we might use an able account and whether there's some age limitations on who it can even use those? Yeah. So an able account is an account that can be established for a person who was disabled prior to turning 26 years old. So the able account actually works kind of like a debit card, but anything in that account is excluded as far as the resource limitation um, with SSI and Medicaid. ABLE accounts can be really valuable for a, um, a person who is disabled but has some ability to use their money for their benefit. I think we're all real advocates for we want to see people for their ability, not their disability. And the ABLE account can really provide some independence to that disabled person. And it's just an element of a plan. Some, the, the misconception I get sometimes is that the ABLE account is uh, – is an alternative to the supplemental needs trust. And it's really not there. They are two pieces that work in harmony and they, they serve different functions. Right. And can you talk a little bit about state rules versus federal rules in this context? Cause I think that that comes up sometimes there are definitely differences related to Medicaid and across state lines, but then some of these other benefit programs or maybe federal programs and why it's so important to get specialized guidance. Yeah, you definitely want to talk with a practitioner in the state where the disabled person is living because uh, both ABLE accounts and supplemental needs trusts are governed by different rules. So the Medicaid regulations and the SSI regulations are implemented at the, or, or they're written at the federal level but they're implement, implemented at each state. So each state has their own regulations that govern 
how those uh, rules are going to be implemented. So really important that you get state-specific information. Perfect. And I'm thinking while you're speaking about a family that I've done planning for, they have a child who is now a teenager and was disabled at the time of birth. And they're starting to look at, okay, well, when he turns 18 or when he stops school at 21, what's his housing arrangement going to look like? And how are we going to make sure that he is eligible for the benefits that he's entitled to? And there's a, a very special time in a person's life when they have a disability. And that's typically at 18. And then again, at 21, where the, the provider, the caregiver, the parent in a lot of cases is looking at, okay, I need to do planning and what different types of planning can be done. And so do you want to speak at all to just that, that idea of family has a child who's about to turn 18 and maybe there's a flavor of guardianship that's needed at the court of chancery level and some additional planning that they sh- should consider? Yeah. So as a disabled child is approaching the age of 18, it's important to understand that the law then separates them from the parent, right? Up until 18, any of the parent's assets or income are deemed to the child. But as they approach the age of 18, there's a legal separation there. So that's why if I have a minor child, I might not be worried about those public benefits. But as they approach 18, I need to be making sure that they're financially eligible um, and make sure that I'm doing planning that, that maintains that eligibility. The other issue that comes up at the age of 18 is guardianship sometimes. So when we have guardianship, we've talked about um, in some pieces throughout our series, but guardianship is really just a court recognizing that a person has the legal authority to make uh, either financial and or personal care decisions for another adult person because that adult person uh, doesn't have the capacity to make their own decisions. The alternative to guardianship is sometimes power of attorney and healthcare directive, and we've had uh, sessions on those two issues. So I think the real, uh, the real thing to understand is if you have a child who's turning 18, do they have the ability to understand uh, legal documents that would allow them to say themselves who they want to act as that decision maker under the power of attorney and healthcare directive? Or do they not have that ability? So if they do have the ability, again, we want to empower that disabled child or that disabled person to make those decisions. So there are times where we use a power of attorney and healthcare directive and the law instructs us to use the least restrictive means. So we always go there first. But if that's not a possibility, guardianship is something that we would pursue also. Perfect. So one final thought. Could a parent leave a separate written memorandum outlining their intentions as to housing needs for their child that may have a disability or other wishes or beliefs or guidance for someone to follow in in further taking care of the person with a disability? Yeah, absolutely. Parents, you know, parents who have raise disabled children and who um, are caring for them into their adult years are special people Mm -hmm. and they have special wishes for their child. And so an aspirational memorandum of intent Mm -hmm. is what we would call it, Mm -hmm. allows them to really detail their hopes, their wishes, their intentions for that adult child. Um, I think it's important because that serves as just further instruction to the trustee, that successor trustee who's going to take over management of the assets when that parent has passed away. And it's just really helpful. It's like a roadmap to them that that says, this is what I want for them. 
Awesome. So I think we've outlined in this episode how important it really is to have a thorough plan to consider these issues if you're planning for a loved one that has supplemental needs. And I think we've outlined the consequences of not planning, potential loss of benefits, loss of control, exposure to predators, not you know, having this robust plan to guide people in the future. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by emailing 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.